Warning. The podcast you are about to hear contains coarse language and tells stories of witches. Unfortunately, this history occasionally involves oppression, victimization, physical and sexual violence, and even torture. We at Missing Witches will always concentrate on these women's power, legacies, victories, and magic, but we can't overlook their struggles or shelter ourselves from reality. We promise never to dwell or be graphic. Email us at missingwitches at gmail.com if you want to be heard, and blessed be. Our story begins in 1960s Montreal. A 10-year-old Indian girl, Ipsida Roy Chakravarti from West Bengal, is about to have the first in a lifelong series of encounters with the supernatural, leading her like breadcrumbs to a life of witchcraft. She'll go on to spend her teenage years in a secret women's school devoted to ancient mystery studies in the Laurentians, north of Montreal. Publicly declare herself a witch in India's national press, and she'll dedicate her life to protecting women from the rape and torture of the modern witch hunt, with an Elvis Presley detour along the way. You aren't being a proper woman, therefore you must be a witch. You must be a witch. Welcome to episode two of the Missing Witches podcast, where we go looking for the stories of some of the real, historically badass women who have practiced magic in the hopes of not fucking it up too much, of learning something, and finding our way to some of these witches we've been missing. Chakraverti was born on November 3rd, 1950, to diplomat De Babrata Chakraverti and Romasen, a descendant of blue blood royals. Chakraverti spent much of her early life in Montreal, where her father was stationed as India's permanent representative on the Council of the International Civil Aviation Organization. When she was little, she read books on Indian mysticism, and as an only child of a privileged family, she was supported in all her interests and in her independence in a way that's still out of reach for many of us. She says her mother was a kind of feminist, and maybe even a witch in the sense that all strong women are witches. This belief shapes her life and is her message to a world that was and is still profoundly unequal. 2,290 people, mostly women, were killed in India between 2001 and 2014 for witchcraft. It's land and property disputes, the rejection of sexual advances and sexual violence, and family feuds that recur as motivating factors in calling a witch. And infuriatingly, it's often a male witch doctor who gets to make the conviction, cementing his power in precarious times. Witch hunters rape, physically torture, and disfigure women's bodies in contemporary witch hunts, and not just in India. Author Dr. Shashank Shekhar Sinha and others describe how this gendered violence increases in a complex relationship to poverty and capitalism and colonialism and nationalism. And when famine in West Bengal brings it all to a head again in the 1980s, the witch hunt changes the course of Chakravarti's life or maybe nudges her onto a path she was always fated for. Back to 1960 Montreal, her family hosts this dinner party with India's leading nuclear physicist, Dr. Homi Baba. 
an icon in Indian history who had both pushed for India to develop nuclear weapons and then driven development of India's peaceful use of nuclear power. At the dinner, little 10-year-old Ipecita doesn't really know who this big deal scientist is, but she feels his power in the room. She stares at his face as he speaks, and suddenly she sees another face transposed, and she hears another name. In an interview, she said of this moment, I described this as best I could to Dr. Baba. It turned out that I had seen Heinrich Hertz and that he was a German physicist, an early pioneer in establishing the existence of electromagnetic radiation. She sees Heinrich Hertz working with arcing light as a snowstorm howls outside. I thought how strange it was that a man of orthodox science should have had this experience with the mystical, should have understood it, accepted it, and explained it to a child. And how strange that so much of her magical thought throughout her book, Beloved Witch, returns to questions about the energy and power in nature, and how we, through magic, and the magic that would later be called science, interact with it. Early in her book, Chakraverti writes, I have gleaned wisdom from the old trees on Mount Royal, from the megaliths of Brittany, and from the mysterious rocks of the temple of Konark at Orissa. I know for a fact that other dimensions exist, that we have other senses, which are in constant communication with higher planes of knowledge and being. The inanimate lives, the dead do not die. We are immortal. At 15, Ipecita encounters this group of women, a group of about 75 members, she says, which dates back about 80 years, who meet in drawing rooms across North America and Europe. Mental Amazons, she calls them, including a famous Broadway actress and a widely respected Egyptologist and many more whose identity she keeps secret. This mysterious school, she reveals the name, the Society for the Study of Ancient Cultures and Civilizations, gets talked about a lot in articles about Chakraverti. But even before her acceptance into this secret order, or study group, or coven, she visits the Kanawake Reservation outside of Montreal. She stays with a First Nations family and is given insight into another tradition another window into the complex power in the natural world. She writes, one evening we talked of power, what it meant, true power, sources of power and how to find them, and objects which could be made and used to draw in power. My friend Minnie's grandfather went into the cabin and brought out things he had made or which had been given to him by his ancestors. Understand them for yourself, he told me. Your mind must always be free as Ikai the eagle. Experience from your own heart. Wisdom comes from within. He held out a long white eagle feather which gave out sparks of light in the dark. And in a copper box there lay two or three of the loveliest crystals I have ever seen. Minnie's grandfather smiled. I'm glad you like the gems of yellow woman. These are used to ward off her bad temper. She's whimsical, like a storm in the desert sands. To the native North American Cochiti tribe, she is a predator, 
a force which devours. But to some people, yellow woman may show a smiling face and be a bride, a benefactor, or a heroine. To the Keres, she signifies the total woman. I picked them up one night near Punished Woman's Lake in South Dakota after a screaming coyote storm. Yellow Woman came in the form of lightning and gave them power, and I have given them power by saying the chants of Father Sky and Mother Earth over them. They can heal or they can destroy, but then power always has two faces, does it not? In a clearing shaped like a teepee or a cone of power in the woods, Ipecita learns a sun dance, drawing energy from the earth, renewing her cells and breath and sinews. Her great-grandmother had also prayed to the sun god, speaking a prayer not given to women, but taken by her in the healing river waters on that day generations before Ipecita learned the sun prayers of another tradition. Part of her repeated message in her book and in her life is that strength and even arrogance in women brings them close to the goddess or to their own goddess being and sets them free, claiming a place for ourselves and our daughters and grandmothers in the sun. There are secret spots around the world where once the great chiefs danced for power. Stand on a spot where you feel the spirit resides. Then crouch and dash your two arms behind you, expelling your breath. Draw energy up from the earth as you breathe in. Close your eyes and steal that energy. In your mind's eye, see a yellow coil of fire ascending. That is what the wolves guard, and it must be stolen. When she returns to the city that summer, she is summoned to officially join the Society for the Study of Ancient Cultures and Civilizations, not just to study about the incredible and the unknown, but to live it, to experiment with it, to become it. She writes, the studies, the discipline, the explorations into the tangible and the intangible set free the mind into the limitless. The universe opened out timeless and ageless. And in the final analysis, I think that is how we should lead our many lives, as players and scholars. And so she consents to go to a house of wood and stone and crumbling stucco tucked in the birches and maples and rolling foothills of the Laurentians mountains, which I have to say sounded so much like my house in that brief description. I laughed out loud when I read this part. So it seems like time for a small personal aside. Because one of the principles of magic you'll hear echoed over and over again is as above, so below, as within, so without. This comes from the Emerald Tablet, a 5th or 6th century document that is the origin of Hermetic philosophy. Newton spent a lot of time thinking about this text, and his translation goes like this. Number one. Tis true without lying, certain and most true. Number two, that which is below is like that which is above, and that which is above is like that which is below, to do the miracles of one only thing. Three, and as all things have been and arose from one by the mediation of one, so all things have their birth from this one thing by adaptation. 
four. The sun is its father, the moon its mother. The wind hath carried it in its belly, the earth is its nurse. Five. The father of all perfection in the whole world is here. Six. Its force or power is entire if it be converted into earth. Seven. Separate thou the earth from the fire, the subtle from the gross, sweetly with great industry. Eight. It ascends from the earth to the heaven, and again it descends to the earth and receives the force of things superior and inferior. Nine. By this means you shall have the glory of the whole world. 10. And thereby all obscurity shall fly from you. 11. Its force is above all force, for it vanquishes every subtle thing and penetrates every solid thing. 12. So was the world created. 13. From this are and do come admirable adaptations, whereof the means or process is here in this. Hence I am called Hermes Trismegist, having the three parts of the philosophy of the whole world. 14. That which I have said of the operation of the sun is accomplished and ended. Some have claimed this is a recipe to transmute lead into gold. Some have spent their lives and lost their sanity working this text. But one tiny and delightful piece of understanding around it is that as all things arose from the mediation of one and have their birth from this one thing by adaptation, in our fractal multiverse, one of the ways non-linear meaning makes itself known and one of the ways magic works and winks to us of its working is through synchronicity. All this to say, if you are at all witchy-minded, it's encouraging to take pleasure in the ways the universe sometimes seems to randomly and unexpectedly rhyme. So here's me. I go looking for real-life historic witches whose stories I can tell, and I find Ipecita Roy Chakraverti telling stories of growing up in my hometown. She says, I went to school in Montreal with its apple orchards near Snowden, and those apple orchards were on the grounds of my high school, you guys an all-girls school full of witches of the very best kind. And she studies in a house in the Laurentians with crumbling stucco. And the lake house I bought with my mom last year, tucked in the foothills of the same small mountain range, is as we speak literally a dust heap of crumbled stucco. We had to knock down a room because the stucco was all rotten inside. Maybe discovering the rot is part of the metaphor here too. Chakraverti's lake house had six gables and in the center an exquisite rose window with tracery, suggesting maybe it was built with a rosy cross connection. Maybe the non-sectarian, non-religious version of rosy cross that predated Christianity and the secret brotherhoods of the Rosicrucians. A rosy cross where the cross represents the human body and the rose represents the individual's unfolding consciousness. Inside, there are rooms for study and ritual, and one room with a thousand crystals, where Carlotta, their leader, gives Chakraverti a crystal skull and an introduction to the crisscrossed histories and mythologies of the 13 crystal skulls. These crystal skulls are curious enough for another quick detour. 
Chakravarti writes, I believe that long ago, a few women in the Laurentians knew much more about the science of crystals than do the most specialized instruments today. She describes a, quote, red Indian legend of 13 ancient crystal skulls, the size of human skulls, with movable jaws, which store knowledge of the origin, purpose, and destiny of mankind. All 13 skulls will one day be rediscovered and brought together. Some legends have it that there are 12 planets in the cosmos inhabited by humans and there is one skull for each. The 13th is a kind of a key. She tells the story of crystal skulls coming to light. From the skull at Luobantan, discovered by Mitchell Hedges, to the Aztec skull in the British Museum of Mankind, to one in the collection of a private family that has a large ornate crystal and gold reliquary cross fused to its head, altered from its original state to show the dominance of the church. Some believe there is a crystal skull in the vaults of the Vatican. Some of these crystal skulls are rumored to move on their own some to heal and bring wealth, others to destroy the lives of their collectors. I love the story of a sacred, secret interplanetary knowledge as much as the next gal, but I'm looking for the real stuff, so we can't be afraid of a little debunking along the way, right? With almost 20 years hindsight since Chakraverti's beloved witch book, more research has been done on these skulls that supposedly mysteriously appeared in collections in the 19th century, and on the mythmakers who spun their stories. National Geographic describes a handful of these rather macabre objects that have fueled intense interest and controversy among archaeologists, scientists, spiritualists, and museum officials for more than a century. Many believe these skulls were carved thousands or even tens of thousands of years ago by an ancient Mesoamerican civilization. Others think they may be relics from the legendary island of Atlantis, or proof that extraterrestrials visited the Aztec sometime before the Spanish conquest. But recent electron microscope analyses of skulls by the British Museum and the Smithsonian Institution revealed markings that could only have been made with modern carving implements. Both museums estimate that their skulls date to sometime in the mid to late 1800s, a time when public interest in ancient cultures was high and museums were eager for pieces to display. The British Museum study, in fact, pinpointed the manufacture of most of the skulls to a specific area in Germany famous for manufacturing intricate quartz and crystal designs in the late 19th century. The crystal is said to have been found in either Brazil or Madagascar and was thus inaccessible to pre-Columbian indigenous civilizations. These examinations and the fact that no skull has ever been uncovered at an official archaeological excavation have led the British Museum to extrapolate that all of the famed crystal skulls are likely fakes. Not to mention, one of the prominently quoted sources for the legend of the skulls is one Claude Harley Swiftier Reagan, who aside from being a notorious teller of tall tales, is putting it kindly, is according to the Cherokee Nation, not Native American. In fact, Cherokee chief Wilma Mankiller has apparently considered suing Reagan for slandering the Cherokee nation with his comments about Cherokee firewomen. And the complaints 
that circulate online about his $1,200 a session Cherokee sex therapy at his new age cult are downright fucking creepy. So I'm ready to leave the skulls aside. Although I could easily go down a rabbit hole researching this area of Germany in the late 19th century and its possible ties to all kinds of occult stuff that emerges from Germany around the same time. But for now, I just kind of want to tie these spinning skulls and their mythology to an idea about sleight of hand and magic and capital M magic, witch magic, element magic, whatever that turns out to be. Chakraverti describes a life of seeking, and any scientist or spiritualist who is mining new veins of thought potential is going to strike the occasional seam of fool's gold. But if the progress of the tarot tells us anything, it's that we're lucky to play the fool, sometimes, heading out hopefully towards new horizons. And I also come back to that sweet myth from our last episode about the Egyptian mystery schools hiding their knowledge in a card game, in the tarot, because it would be safer in a game of chance than in the hands of virtuous men. Sometimes a scam hides a truth. And Chakraverti includes sleight of hand in the Wiccan toolbox. She says, conjuring, sleight of hand, ritual, magical objects, flowing robes, ambiance, these were all tools of the trade at one time. And they were used to aid people who came for help to the Magi to alter consciousness. Sometimes they shocked, like an electric jolt, to regain lost mental balance. Often they provided an anchor for the insecure that served to calm before the actual wicked treatment began. I don't think I want to suggest that Chakraverti's interest in the skulls wasn't genuine. I just wonder if sometimes we go down detours like this to jolt ourselves towards new ideas. Like maybe it takes ornate crystal skulls for us to think about the energy and even consciousness in regular hunks of stone. It turns out that as traditional attempts to explain consciousness continue to fail, a pan-psychist view is being taken seriously by credible philosophers, neuroscientists, and physicists, including figures like neuroscientist Christoph Koch and physicist Roger Penrose. One interpretation of panpsychism suggests that any system is conscious. Rocks, spoons will be conscious. The earth itself is conscious. Any kind of aggregation gives you consciousness. Physicists suggesting everything has consciousness could conceivably lead centuries of animist religions across hundreds of different cultures to be kind of like, yeah, duh. Even Marie Kondo, trendy goddess guru of getting rid of things, asks that you thank objects for their service before you send them on their way. Ipposita learns to love and thank and receive energy from trees as a student in the Laurentians, and we can def relate to this. <laughs> My co-producer Amy tells me that since moving to the woods, where we're recording now, she's surprisingly never lonely. In a real way, the trees have become her friends. And we are both unabashed and literal tree huggers. Plus, there's that thing you know about animals when you are young. 
that they see you and know they are loved by you. Do you remember this? We have an instinct for what Chakraverti and other witches call familiars when we're little, I think. And we can see castle forts and shipwrecks where others see blankets and beds. Maybe we can share a more direct, imagined, emotional kind of consciousness. Chakraverti writes that according to Egyptians and Celts, stone and wood have thoughts and a certain kind of comprehension. And she describes experiences in the Grand Canyon and at the Sun Temple at Konark in Orissa, where the mundane world thins. With help from meditation or collective song and something special in the rock or sea or geometry of the spot, the electricity in the air changes. Maybe something that's always there can reach you for a second. Maybe the consciousness that's out there can sometimes recognize that we are recognizing it. Culturally, we've used stories about the supernatural to wrap our industrialized egos around the unaccountable otherness in the natural world. Maybe we're fascinated by aliens and mermaids and centaurs and unicorns as we try to grasp the magic in mind, wholly other to the ways we understand our own, in the animals we've mostly lost from our daily lives, or even the ones we keep close. Terriers, coyotes, and pigeons, peacocks, and elk. But if stories can help us approach and love the unknown, they definitely do the opposite as well. Stories get used by power seekers to demonize and capitalize, and Chakraverti runs right into this in West Bengal. In certain society circles throughout the 80s, Chakraverti becomes known as a Wiccan, and some genuinely tortured people come to her for healing, while others come with less pure ends in sight. She gets sick of seeing this side of human nature. I hated to be confused with a miracle-peddling godwoman or guru I felt contaminated. My power had been given me by a source which did not stoop to doling out favors to the greedy or ignorant. So she stops her sessions and decides to go to the villages of Bengal and Orissa, the interiors which most city dwellers choose to read about, not to visit. The summer I went to Purulia, the sun blazed down and the temperature soared to 48 Celsius in the shade. That summer was a grueling one. A social welfare organization had asked me to accompany them to the rural areas of Bengal where there had been some cases of alleged witch hunting. I was asked to talk to the women accused or to their nearest kin. My job was mainly one of counselor and investigator. She builds trust with the women in the community until they finally begin to tell of women who have gone missing. Witch accusations against women who rejected sexual advances or who were widows finally able to own their own land. Accused, raped, and disappeared, their lands are now owned by their accusers. It's infuriating and blatant. And it blatantly repeats the patterns that fueled the European witch hunts of the 15th century, where a dominant culture is taking control not just of land, but of definitions of who is human. A grasping, violent, accusing nature characterizes the movement of the state as it consumes and colonizes new lands, justifies slavery, and whips misogynist hysteria to a fever pitch. And individuals echo and enact this pattern in waves across small communities and onto individual women's bodies. 
Dr. Shashank Shikhar Sinha writes that in India, witch hunting was closely linked to the colonial administration's effort to extend political and juridical domain. The missionaries' zeal to civilize the pagan and ethnographers and anthropologists' ardor to primitivize the Adivasis, the indigenous. The compilation and documentation of the folklore related to witchcraft by the administrators, ethnographers, and missionaries, and its frequent reproduction in gazetteers, administrative reports, and official literature gave a formal definition and structure to what otherwise constituted a scattered set of beliefs. She ties re-emergence of this greedy, sexualized violence to the dislocation and poverty among Adivasi, indigenous people, in the vast tea farming industry that perpetuates a cycle of cascading disempowerment which still plays out today. In an environment where witch hunting is actually violently happening, Chakraverti takes the fairly badass stance of going to national press and declaring herself a witch. She gives herself over to the public eye and explains what Wicca is, where she learned it, and she gives insights in countless interviews into her goddess-oriented beliefs and practices. By the 1990s, she is publicly, directly addressing India's witchcraft-related violence problem and the reality of women being branded Dahayans or witches. She's protected by her class and her wealth, and she knows it, and she uses her position to force a conversation. In an essay for the Hindustan Times, she writes, Wicca and witchcraft are the key to liberation. India is very patriarchal, even today. When they saw me standing up for those they were trying to brand and destroy and saw that I was helping these women by calling myself a witch, these lobbies erupted with fury. These were vested interests which could not tolerate me because I was saying that a woman who was an individual had her own rights. She ties herself to vulnerable women and then ties them together to an ideal of female power that transcends borders. I follow a tradition which encompasses the goddesses of all cultures, East and West, she writes. After all, the Wiccan tradition spans something which is beyond barriers of land and people. We follow the goddess culture. We acknowledge the Indian goddesses Durga for strength, Kali for detachment and power, and Saraswati for learning and the quest for knowledge. All these goddesses seem to have Western counterparts. Hence, we look upon the goddess power as one, whose manifestations are many. As all manifestations of the goddess are one, all women are one in Chakravarti's vision. She writes and repeats, every strong woman is a witch and all are hunted. History somehow always repeats itself, or perhaps it is that the basest in human nature lives on. The men who tortured and burnt innocent women in medieval Europe live on in other places, in different guises. Witch hunting never stopped. It just took on a more deceptive mask. In my experience with thousands of women who have come to me for help, I would say that every strong woman is a witch and all are hunted. It goes against the nature of most men to tolerate a woman they cannot dominate. Witch hunting is present not just in rural Bengal, Bihar, Orissa, Uttar Pradesh, or Madhya Pradesh. It prevails 
everywhere in the world where women stand up for themselves and what they believe in. It is there whenever women refuse to be the pawns or playthings of a callous society. In a society which batters and bruises its women physically and mentally, in home and in the workplace, every woman is a witch. Me too, Ipecita. Hashtag me too. Writing about Ipecita is slippery. Sometimes I want to holler in agreement with her and print her fucking catchphrases on a t-shirt. Sometimes the tone of her books and website and movies is melodramatic, haughty, even gossipy, and sometimes they read like a gothic novel. But we're looking for the missing witch stuff, so I'll tell you this. She says her daily physical training, including yoga and bathing rites with rose petals, have honed her insight and intuition and slowed her aging. She still today leads a Wiccan brigade and the Young Bengal Brigade, an open access community of study in Calcutta, which explores comparative religion, philosophy, and psychology, ancient scriptures, and mystical traditions. Even when she has encountered evil, she says curses haven't been necessary. She sees the people who would harm her hit with scandal and sickness, their parades drenched in a monsoon rain. She rejects superstition and considers herself a scientifically-minded skeptic in some ways, a seeker of truth. From a 2004 article in the Hindu, India's national newspaper, she has fought against tantric cults that believe in human sacrifices, and there is no quarrel in her own scheme of things between logic and the unknown, since she never lets either rule her life entirely. Superstition is a vague word. If you cling too much to logic, you are robbed of the beauty and venture of life, she says. Logic, no doubt, can't explain all there is to life. In Beloved Witch, she writes... What I have actually striven for is a few pickings from the vast harvest of truth which lies beyond. And if I continue to use my arrogance against society, it is because I deplore its hypocrisy. Though at times it's grating, the best and fiercest knowledge you get from reading her interviews in books is that she truly gives no fucks. I love arrogance in a woman. It is the one quality that sets her at par with the goddess. She has a strength that is completely at peace with her own powers and beauty. She has transmuted the experience of being hunted into being Huntress, Durga and Diana, and that for her is the Wiccan path. And I wish it for all of us. I wanna tell the Elvis story before we end. It's the summer, mid-60s, in Montreal, and Ipecita's friend, an actress, is invited down to visit her friend Elvis, and she brings her lovely witch-in-training along. They hang out at Graceland for a couple days, swimming and talking with the young musician and his parents. The scene is sunlit and innocent. He tells her that when he was younger, he had a healer's touch that he would be asked to lay hands on a child in pain and the pain would actually gradually go away. He doesn't do it anymore or talk about it, knowing how it would seem. She writes that he said, 
People are funny that way, Abisita. They'd rather believe the worst of a person. They don't like anyone to have it too good. You know, most people think I'm selling sex. They say my attitude and movements are indecent. They seem to think the only commodity that is saleable and earns money is sex, but I know for a fact that's not so. People want healing. Maybe you're healing through your music, I said. He looked at me as if I'd just said something he'd been trying to say for a long time. We were both possessors of an alien energy which didn't have a name. I knew that his phenomenal attraction was misunderstood by people. And I knew that his time with this special energy was short. It would leave him about the time his mother, Grace, passed on. From that time onwards, he would return to the mundane world dimension and life would be a struggle as it is for most people. Ipposita sees Elvis's future from that sunny, innocent veranda that a quality of his magic was tied to grace. And maybe there's something for us here. A knowledge balanced between arrogance and grace, sex appeal and healing, Wicca and gospel music. As we go looking for the witches we've been missing out there in the world or inside of ourselves, I officially pod bless us all with a little early Elvis a little ageless chakraverti, a dash of rose petals and crystal skull fakery and mad love for wherever we happen to be these days in the vast harvest of truth-seeking. You must be a witch. Thanks for listening to episode two of the Missing Witches podcast. If you want to know more about Ipsita, be sure to check out our companion podcast, Witches Found. We reached out to Ipsita and she reached back, y'all. So this week on Witches Found, you'll hear her answers to our questions as we chat with an Ayurvedic practitioner about self-care and a whole bunch of other stuff. So that's Missing Witches Sundays and Witches Found Wednesdays. And don't forget to like, share, subscribe, and follow us on social media at Missing Witches.